to episode 412, sort of, of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, sort of, because this is kind of a bonus episode. It is an interview with Amy Gaida, who is a law professor at Tulane, uh, who's a former journalist and the author of a well-reviewed and good book about privacy and the press called Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. So I'm going to just jump right in. Amy, welcome to the Cyberlaw Podcast. And let me just ask you, what's an elevator summary of this book? Sure. So the elevator summary is, and I should say thanks so much for having me. The elevator summary is this clash between the right to know. So the public's right to know truthful information, the press's right to publish truthful information, and the right to privacy over history. So from the very beginning of the United States up through to 2022, when the book uh, was published. So it looks at the course of privacy and how the right to privacy impacts that uh, right to know and freedom of the press. And you tell this story. I, it's clear that this is a law book, or at least there's a lot of law in the book, but you tell the story through the stories of the people who litigated or represented the parties. And so it's very much a set of stories rather than a set of summaries of the holdings of cases. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that a lot of the material that's in the book is not well known, if known at all. And so I find that these stories, I thought that they were very interesting when I uncovered them. And so I'm sharing really the stories of people that helped to influence privacy over the course of time in the United States. Yeah. And frankly, if I got a criticism of the book, it's that you fell in love with the stories and at, at, at various points in the book kind of stop telling us what the book was about and just told us the stories. But I, 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 spoken I'm, like I'm a true lawyer. Back. Spoken yes, like a exactly. true lawyer. Exactly. exactly. I, I want to know what your position is up front before I start reading your damn story. Yes. Okay. So let's, let's just try to do the interview by focusing on the stories. And I'm just going to give you some names and ask you what they have to do with privacy and the press. Uh, Sally Pratt McLean. Sure. Sally Pratt-McLean was a woman who went to a small town on Cape Cod and worked as a school teacher. And unbeknownst to the people who lived there, she was taking fastidious notes about her interaction with these people uh, on Cape Cod, her students, their parents, her neighbors, the people she lived with. And she, after a couple of years working as a teacher, she went uh, home uh, and wrote an expose about small town life on Cape Cod, revealing a number of stories uh, about a, a student who attempted uh, to kiss her and actually did a number of times, and and a woman she lived with who whose husband was away at sea, and the woman found it difficult to raise two children by herself, and so occasionally mistreated the children. And so Sally Pratt McLean writes the story of her um, of her life in Cape Cod. And, and presented it to the public as a novel. At least the reviewers believed it was a novel until these people came forward and said, what, you have shared our secrets with the greater public and that's not right. That's in effect an invasion of our privacy. And intriguing- Well, and she, she was mocking them. This is like 
the people of Walmart Twitter uh, account. It's people who think they belong to a better class than the folks that they are actually associating with and who compensate for that by mocking them. It's like all the discussions of flyover country and Trump voters that we hear today, this is the 19th century version of that. Scoring points against people who you are uncomfortably close to in class terms and want to make sure nobody mistakes you for somebody in that class. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And it's pretty clear that that was her motivation to make fun of these people written in a book that was meant for not those people, but for people within her own class, which was certainly higher than that of the people she focused on. So that drags into this discussion, into the matter, a bunch of lawyers who are famous in press and privacy grounds. You've got Louis Brandeis, you've got Justice Holmes, but playing roles, especially Brandeis, that are kind of completely antithetical to their reputation. That's right. So Brandeis writes The Right to Privacy in 1890. But before that point, in the 1880s, he represented the publisher of Cape Cod Folks. So he argued uh, that, in fact, this material did not harm the individual's reputation, that it was meant to be in good fun, and therefore reputations were not harmed. His argument was that if the people written about in this book had any sort of valid claim, it was invasion of the right to privacy. And he suggested to the high court when he made that argument that privacy did not exist. And so therefore, if privacy did not exist in law, these individuals featured in the book had no right, had no ability to claim anything, that really it was an invasion of privacy claim, not a libel claim, not what is the equivalent of an IIED claim, ridicule, called ridicule at the time. And so his argument is, hey, sorry, this is a privacy claim. Privacy doesn't exist. Therefore, people featured in Cape Cod folks, you have no valid claim here. And he's making this argument to the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts, where Oliver Wendell Holmes is a justice. And your assessment is that they held the case so long they were going to rule against Brandeis. That's my sense. I mean, things went very, very quickly at the time. And it's pretty clear from Justice Holmes' um, bench book that all the other cases argued on that day and on days around that were decided within a few weeks. And this went on for months. So the decision was held back for months. The drafter of the opinion changed from Justice Holmes to another justice. And so it's interesting to think about you know, why that was, what was happening. Sadly, the file doesn't exist anymore at the court. I suggest that if they were, in fact, to find in favor of the people featured in Cape Cod folks, it would have taken the court a much longer time to write that opinion if they were deciding that privacy didn't exist, that, in fact, that would have been very quickly uh, written. So Brandeis ultimately settles the case, gets his client out, and manages to get it out without him being responsible for a decision that says there is no privacy. So it's a sweet deal for him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Or that, in fact, there would be some sort of privacy, because if the court had decided that, it certainly would have hurt his his client, the publisher. So um, one of the things that I, I found striking about this is you point out that in the 1880s, when this case was kicking around and uh, all the people we associate with these issues, uh, uh, 
uh, on into the 1920s were struggling with it. They were actually closer in time to Jefferson and Hamilton than to us. And so Jefferson and Hamilton had their own run-ins with the right to privacy and the right to publish true facts. Those are a little more familiar, especially Hamilton, now that we can't avoid the musical. But tell me how the WASP fits into this. This is the newspaper that published a lot of this stuff. So back then there were newspapers that, that, that were highly political, sort of like people would suggest our media uh, is today, and they would report only on uh, their own political uh, party in a very complimentary fashion and the other political party in demeaning. And so- And, and uh, you could you could apparently pay them to write stories trashing the other side, uh, yeah, which so maybe actually now that I think about ProPublica is not so far off of that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So today the ethics restrictions that exist in journalism were not did not bind the journalists of the day, let's say. And so individuals, journalists, newspaper people would then publish material harmful to, say, Alexander Hamilton and uh, also Thomas Jefferson. So reporting truthful information uh, about their affairs, extramarital or otherwise, in this political clash. And what's intriguing about that is back in the day, the government brought an action against a newspaper editor who'd reported that Thomas Jefferson had done some bad things. Now, he didn't... Well, he had paid other journalists to attack Washington, uh, as well as Hamilton, right? And the government, it was New York, I think, says, yeah, sure, that sounds like a crime to us. You published a fact... It might be true, but it's so discreditable that you shouldn't have done it. That's right. It somehow, it, 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 this is this is the case that's hardest to get your arms around in the modern world. The idea that, of course, the government would just say that's a criminal libel, even though it's true, uh, even though it's clearly, you know, uh, paying people to trash Washington has to be a, a, a question of uh, interest to the public. That that was why those stories appeared. And then Hamilton, who has his own problems in this area, says, oh, yeah, we ought to prosecute this guy. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, he wants to defend it, right? right. So he's defending the publisher, even though if, if he isn't already, he's about to be on the receiving end of all kinds of scurrilous stories. Yeah, and he had been at that point. So a okay. lot of the journalists had reported stuff about Hamilton as well. And so when he makes... Okay, so his pitch to the client presumably is, if anybody can make this argument on your behalf, it's me, right? It's like having a woman cross-examine Amy Hurwitz, uh Johnny Depp's, is it her? What's her first name? Heard? Yeah, Amber. Um, yeah. Amber Heard. Sorry. Yeah. He, he says, well, everyone will believe I believe in your cause because obviously I'm a, a victim of this kind of behavior. That's right. But in, intriguingly, or perhaps understandably, his argument is not that the press has the ability to report whatever it wants to as long as it's true. His argument is we have to draw the line someplace. He, his argument is, if the newspaper wants to report bad things about Thomas Jefferson, so be it. However, we're going to draw a line someplace. And that line is drawn at, in effect, family matters. So those sorts of scurrilous, as you suggest, scandalous bits of information that Hamilton himself had already suffered. So his argument in defending the newspaper uh, of the day that it reported those things about Jefferson wasn't that the newspaper of the day 
could do whatever it wanted. His argument is that, in fact, that's fine. The reporting that they did on Jefferson was fine. But had they gone further and reported something that dealt more with what Hamilton would consider Jefferson's private life, that would have gone too far. So it's not freedom of the press. It's not absolutism in any sense. It's, yeah, we have to draw the line someplace, and that someplace just might be at extramarital affairs, for example. Or sleeping with your slave. And what's kind of remarkable, maybe there was a hidden message in his argument. He said, don't push me here, or I'll start talking about sleeping with your slave, too. And Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings is disclosed, and he gets the publisher prosecuted on presumably Hamilton's theory. Well, this is family uh, of a sort. Yeah, that's right. And and that doesn't go very far, but it did go to a jury and the jury decided that that publisher was not then um, not guilty. So, so I was prepared to believe that this is just, it was completely confused, that, that they hadn't thought seriously about what press freedom meant. They obviously didn't know exactly what was too private, but you made the point that I thought, you know, really changed my mind on, on this. Hamilton, again, gets himself shot in a duel with Aaron Burr, and state legislatures start passing anti-dueling laws. And the way to stop dueling, they say, is to let people sue over the kinds of things that you would fight a duel over, including these accurate statements that are really embarrassing about your family life. They really had an idea here that wasn't stupid. And and they called it truthful libel back then, which sounds contradictory. And yet the idea was the greater the truth about the information, and the more the information is, the greater the person's reputation will be harmed if the information is revealed. And, and what I find intriguing about that is that the truth, in other words, mattered because the truth made it worse. And so, <laughs> and so yes, and we, we have, we just can't follow that. No. I, 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 but I think when you ask what are fighting words, it, it's clear that these are fighting words that when somebody says that about your mama, it's worse if it's true. Yeah. And that gets back to the whole, you know, notion of dueling, as you suggest. And very early on, even before the First Amendment was ratified, there was this idea, a discussion that suggested that if certain information about, quote, male conduct was revealed, uh, that in fact, freedom of the press would not protect such revelations. So deeply intriguing uh, right to know versus right to privacy very, very early on in the United States, especially with regard to politics. That takes us right to Grover Cleveland, who has to be the the randiest president between uh, Jefferson and Bill Clinton, and somebody who paid a price for it. Give us a, a taste of how sexually enthusiastic he was and how it ended up causing problems for him. Sure. So Grover Cleveland married his adopted daughter in effect. So he had not actually adopted her, but her father was his law partner and her father died. He then helped to raise her. And when she turned 18, he started dating her. And so the press was very intrigued with this relationship. Eventually, everyone fell in love with her and sort of lost interest. But very early on, Grover Cleveland was dismayed at the amount of interest that the press had in his life. In this sense, he also had a a child who may or 
who was born out of wedlock, let's say. And so that was also potentially scandalous. So there were a lot of things in his life that made him want privacy and made him despise the media of the day as the media of the day became more intrigued with what he considered his private, his personal relationships. Right. And led to one of the great uh, campaign slogans of uh, all time, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Off to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. Which was uh, what his opponent popularized when he was running for office. Yeah. So when he gets into office, he has an opportunity to kind of act on his animus. And this is the story of the Washington Bee, which is a black paper in Washington that doesn't expose on Cleveland appointees and their sexual harassment of people in the government office they work at, the government sues for a life and convicts him. Again, no indication that this wasn't true. And he asks, boy, this is a hopeless task. He asks Cleveland for clemency. No sign that Cleveland has any interest in giving him clemency. That's right. So he's sent to jail by a jury. And the argument was on the government's part that this sort of information was inappropriate for a newspaper that, in fact, if the editor of the newspaper had wanted to take this sexual harasser out of from office, that what he should have done was gone to Grover Cleveland himself and just said, hey, here's what I found out about this sexual harasser. You should remove him from office. And a jury agreed. And in that way, then, the information that was published caused this newspaper editor to to be sent to jail. And Cleveland absolutely rejects, in very, very forceful words, any sort of clemency and suggests that, in fact, journalists might learn a lesson from this, uh, might learn uh, (laughs) uh, not to report this sort of thing about individuals uh, who might be harmed. And you're exactly right that there, too, the truth of the information didn't matter at all all. What mattered was that this newspaper editor should have gone, the argument was, to Grover Cleveland himself to make that um, change in government. So the one thing that you didn't talk about that I think here may be at least as salient as the privacy and press conflict is the racial element to American politics. Grover Cleveland was the only representative of the Democrats, the party of the Confederacy, basically, between the Civil War and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, He got in because uh, New York flipped and he helped flip New York. But he was deeply in hock to all the, I guess they were at the time, segregationists, Confederacy fans. And so he was, you know, if if you were a a black journalist, you knew he was the enemy. It's the way most black journalists feel about the Republican Party today, because the politics have flipped. And so it was not at all surprising that somebody who was playing that role would, one, um, turn out the old head of the office and bring in somebody new for a patronage job who was on his side, and then resist any suggestion that he ought to be removed for almost any uh, misconduct, because I'm sure that the Democrats had the same problem the Republicans had. There weren't that many people of their party who were Black that they could appoint, appoint anything. So uh, this was overdetermined that he was not going to get clemency. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right, that why not just keep him in jail for um, that narrower purpose and then also the broader purpose of teaching all journalists how to behave. 
Okay, Upton Sinclair, I, I will compliment you again on uh, uh, your nose for uh, particularly male hypocrisy. It's just great. We've got everybody from Louis Brandeis to Upton Sinclair to the co-author uh, of um, the Brandeis piece on privacy, Sam Warren, uh, completely on the other side of the issues that they have stood up in public to defend. But Upton Sinclair, the guy has no shame. <laughs> So, right. So he reveals in the jungle how sausage is made and becomes somewhat of a public figure. And so the press of the day is very deeply intrigued with who he is as a person. He was attempting to open up a, a commune of sorts at the time. And so some of the journalists- And everybody thought it was a free love commune and it probably was, right? Yeah, right. I would say so. And so journalists went undercover to the commune to try to report uh, on him. He found this distressing- and then there was the suggestion that he was having trouble in his marriage. And so the journalists were very intrigued with that as well. Uh, turns out that this was true. His wife then divorces him and finds, or, or I should say first, his wife finds another love, uh, a poet from Kansas. And the three of them meet with the media to suggest that, no, there's nothing wacky going on here. Um, <laughs> we, exactly. Uh, and no problem no, here. No problem. Just the, just the three of us. Right. I, I, they call that a Thruple in, uh, in modern days. Right. But, uh, yeah. and, and we should say that it, it's not clear that there ever was such a thing. And yet it was deeply intriguing to the media of the day that loved marriage and wanted to encourage marriage that the three of them would get together and hold a press conference in effect. Okay. And so during the divorce, uh, there was great interest in, again, what Upton Sinclair would consider his private life. And so he moves to the Netherlands, comes back and writes this expose about journalism and argues there that there should be the right to privacy, both in ethics and intriguingly in law. And so Upton Sinclair also has a role, despite the fact that he revealed how sausage was made, has a role in not only the history of journalism ethics in the United States, but also then in the law of privacy as well. And just a footnote, you know, Samuel Warren is the lesser known of the two authors of The Right to Privacy, but the one who was more enthusiastic about it because he was a rich guy and he didn't like the coverage he got. For him, the right to privacy is like a foreshadowing of disaster because ultimately the paper company that he runs with the family sinks into litigation. He's accused of self-dealing and then his Brub ends up in a scandal for having passed gonorrhea onto his wife. And who should exploit that story but Upton Sinclair, who writes a novel built around that premise and, you know, not a well-disguised story of the Warren family. So Warren really, in fearing what the press was going to do to people that they got interested in, was spot on. Uh, Upton Sinclair, in later saying what we need is more ethics in disclosing privacy, private data, doesn't look quite so good. Yeah, that's right. And we're not even sure. There were suggestions that, in fact, that the Warren brother was, I mean, Upton Sinclair said that the Warren brother was, in fact, the role model for this, this scandalous character in Upton Sinclair's uh, novel. But of course, we'll never know what was true and, and what wasn't. And another really important part of it is that Sam Warren 
born uh, when he writes The Right to Privacy with Louis Brandeis. And Louis Brandeis suggested that it was, in fact, motivated by Sam Warren, that Sam Warren was really good friends with Grover Cleveland. And so ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, then we have Grover Cleveland very interested in maintaining privacy for all the wrong reasons, uh, then good buds with Sam Warren, who then uh, writes this plea that we still use today in the Harvard Law Review titled The Right to Privacy. So yeah, you, you could have written a different book, sort of bringing, sort of making Grover Cleveland the principal participant in a whitewater type scandal, conspiracy reaching out, you know, uh, how many people committed, oh, actually, uh, Sam Warren committed suicide. So yes, and you know, maybe there should be tweets about whether Sam Warren really committed suicide. Okay, it's a terrific set of vignettes and not very many people come out out of it looking good. Let's see if we can sum up the lessons out of this because in in the end, it's a very complicated set of stories in which sometimes privacy is winning, sometimes the press is winning. If I had to summarize it, I'd say um, privacy looks good for, you know, anti-dueling and just who are these low-class journalists anyway? I could hire a bunch of them and I shouldn't do that kind of uh, stuff for 80, 90 years. And then the press starts making money. And once they have enough money and enough influence, they start talking about how important the freedom of the press is, a trend that continues to this day. And they start winning cases and publicizing the wins and burying the losses as the, as the presses want. And it starts shaping the, the zeitgeist. And as part of, I, I will call it, it's not quite fair to call it cover for that, but as a way of justifying freedom, they embrace responsibility. And that's Upton Sinclair's later years, you know, we need to have a code of ethics. And that enables the courts to embrace uh, the version of law that we are familiar with today, but which you make the point is really an imposition on a much messier history and maybe a, a history that is a little more reflective of our values, which is the notion that you can't possibly be sued for revealing true facts. And we get some law like that. And what I think I hear you saying is, yeah, that's not going to last. We're already starting to see that erode under the impact of the internet. So that's my long exegesis on your theme. So why don't you tell me which parts of the thing you'd agree with? I, I agree with all of it. And what I find uh, intriguing, as you suggest, is that it really was, as we began to consider journalism as media more broadly, that courts really began to feel, judges really began to feel the ability to judge newsworthiness. And previously, the judges would say, generally, who are we to know what is newsworthy and what isn't? We're going to leave it up to journalists. Journalists can report whatever they want to. There really is no valid privacy claim. In effect, in most cases, that's what judges said. Well, suddenly, we have this new thing called um, the internet. Everyone is a journalist. 
journalist, so some say, and anyone then can publish whatever they want. And so you see today's courts rolling it back and suggesting that, in fact, there is this right to privacy that was once rejected and that people do have valid claims for the publication of medical information, for example, or deeply personal sexual information. Those sorts of things have always been protected in the United States from truthful libel up through today. And you just find increasingly plaintiffs bringing those claims and winning. Okay. Amy Guida, the name of the book is Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. It was a a wild ride. I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, You need to have listened to this podcast episode, though, at least if you're a lawyer, to understand what Amy's thesis is so that you can read all the stories, understanding what she's trying to tell you. Because otherwise, you just get as you did, Amy, uh, deep into the stories. And then you you kind of poke your head up and say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the last story. What's going on here? But uh, it it does all hang together. And it was a great fun to read. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And lawyers, you know, it's really written for the general public, but lawyers interested might actually want to start at part three, which looks at the current state of law and then go back and take a look. Yeah, you at don't you do not want to miss all you don't want to miss the sex and hypocrisy for sure. <laughs> right, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That concludes episode 412 of the Cyber Law Podcast, uh, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson. We are in the final stages of finding somebody who can be an intern for the Cyber Law Podcast and do our sound production and some of our substantive work. So if you have not gotten a CV to Cyber Law Podcast at Steptoe.com, do it now or it'll be too late. Thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 412. Thank you.